Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Irish conductor who divides her time between composing and conducting, both on the concert platform and in the recording studio. She often works in the world of film, TV and video games, and in 2020, she was the first woman to conduct at the Oscars. It's a pleasure to welcome Ema Noon. Ema, it's wonderful to see you and to chat with you and to meet you. How are you? Thanks, Mike. I'm well, thank you. Um, Good. Excited to talk to you. And me too. Basically because I think there's going to be a lot of firsts. Uh, and I like podcasts where there's lots of firsts. Also, the interviews where I know that there are questions ahead of me to which I don't know the answer. I'm really looking forward to that. One of them is, when did music first come into your life? I can't find out uh, anything about instruments that you've played. The first thing I can find out is you went to Trinity College in Dublin. But before that, how did music first enter your world? <laughs> Um, music, I just don't remember a time where it wasn't in my life. I'm sure you're the same. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in a tiny village in East Galway in Ireland, which is actually where I am right now. And we had a composer, a famous composer of traditional Irish music living in the heart of the village. Oh, so, wow. so for me, it, it was never weird or outlandish or strange to be a composer to begin with. Um, but I did grow up in an area that was predominantly um, known for traditional Irish music. Mm. However, the first time I heard an orchestra on TV, I was just in love right yeah. away. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was it was really strange because I can remember the moment my dad called me in to look at something on TV. I was about seven years old and it was somebody conducting in Vienna. And I remember looking at it and going, oh, my, wow, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just I, I have that memory of, of just deciding you know, I was about seven years old in Ireland. Music is in the classroom in, mm. in every school. And, you know, the way kids are handed recorders in the classroom in in the west of Ireland, that's a tin whistle, a penny whistle. Um, which is funny because I just recorded a, a part on a TV score I just wrote. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, boy, am I getting back to my roots right now. <laughs> um, I'm in the same village and I'm playing the first instrument that I ever picked up. But you know the way we all have our angels. And one of my first angels was my primary school teacher who, when I was four or five years old, um, drove up to my parents' house and insisted that I study music. <laughs> and getting a visit from the, you know, the, the school teacher in your local village at that time, you know, um, was quite unusual. And she was so adamant that she insisted that I come to her house because we had no piano. My parents were really young and, and they were building a house and they had barely a stick of furniture, let alone a piano insisted I come to her house and have her daughter teach me um, some some rudimentary piano. And that was it. I used to practice in the school piano at lunchtime until my parents got one. And, uh, you know, it was it was a very normal and unusual uh, musical upbringing at the same time. Mm. And I studied I studied piano like everybody else and did all my grades. But I I actually my degree, I was in the conservatory in Dublin 
now called the TU Conservatory, was the College of Music when I was there. Um, for eight years, I, I held a scholarship there for most of that eight years in concert flute performance. Oh, wow. And actually, yeah, my degree from Trinity, my undergraduate is in composition and con uh, concert flute performance. Oh. So um, my thing is, I have um, very bad hands. I've, I've rarely ever spoken about this, actually. My hands are so double jointed that I could absolutely never be a professional string player. Mm, In fact, mm. I had as a child, I had I had players refuse to teach me because they're afraid I'd, I'd have my heart broken later on. And they were yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the few choices I had, for instance, if I, you know, piano concertos would never be possible. My hands just collapse on themselves. But I could play woodwinds. And I um, wanted, I felt that I needed to play uh, to a professional standard and play the, con the, the conservatoire test pieces and the, the concerti before I would allow myself have a notion of standing in front of an orchestra mm. or even writing for the orchestra. I, I just felt it'd be just too gauche, you know, yeah, yeah, how yeah. dare I tell people what to do if I hadn't done it myself. I'm assuming because I've asked this question of other people who compose, uh, you know, at a, in your teens as you obviously were. I mean, I know you said that you you saw that TV uh, broadcast from Vienna when you were seven, but I'm assuming that the first time you conducted anything as a composer would be one of your own works. It's how many composers I've interviewed get into conducting. Is you know somebody's got to no, conduct your piece? It's is it not true? Yeah. Uh, no it's not true uh, I've had these parallel lives as uh, a musician so I've had for for the longest time these parallel lives where there's there's me the composer and there's me the conductor and mm. it, was, it was quite some time before the two <laughs> came together <laughs> right, okay. um, so I had my first performance um, I think my first professional performance I was 16 it was the Irish Chamber Choir yeah uh -huh. of a piece I had written and um, that was a broadcast for RTE, the Irish um, national broadcaster. And my first conducting thing, um, I, I love this story, by the way, you've got to reel me back because, <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, my, my, my story is not the, you know, my parents were not professional musicians. You know, I wasn't hothoused. You know, I didn't stage yeah. mom. It was nothing like that. It was purely based on my own visceral reaction to music and trying to find out why do I feel this way and, and why does it why is it doing this to me and how do I learn more about it and how do I be more a part of it? Yeah. So I went to in this this small village, I went to the primary village school here. Um, then the, the local town, the massive town of like six and a half thousand people. <laughs> um, I went to the, the all-girls school and the army band arrived in my town to give a concert. And the teachers were asked, is there someone that can sight read the concert? And myself and another girl were sent in. And like that, because we had been part of the local town band slash wind ensemble, we could sight read anything. Mm. And you're often thrown, you know, clarinet parts at you and God knows what. So you could transpose really well and everything. And I was sitting down with the band 
and of sight reading on piccolo of you're only going to do that when you're 15 years old you're not <laughs> going to do that as an adult you know no. like nowhere to hide of no. all instruments yeah <laughs> and the the conductor looks down at me and goes all right you're up next i looked at the the flutist next to me like, what does he mean you're up next he goes ah oh, they do this thing you get, he'll call you up to conduct just wave your arms around we know the music will be fine <laughs> i was like what <laughs> and it was equal parts trepidation and pure excitement yeah you know? exactly yeah. so little did they know they had asked the wrong person <laughs> because for years i had been sort of hoarding scores from anywhere i could get them you know, a, a choral score from Mozart Requiem because my parents' friends were in a, a choir that did, performed it, or I'd found some Beethoven symphonies in the back of the music room at school or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have the IMSLP at that point, no, the greatest no. thing on the internet as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Um, so uh, it was, it was, I had been literally imagining my orchestra in my parents' attic for years at this point so when i got up to conduct <laughs> i made the band sit there and 600 girls sitting in the audience behind me you know made them sit there and wait until i read through the score once and i'm looking up going where's the euphonium you know where's <laughs> it? <laughs> and i i conducted the band and the greatest thing happened which was um you know i, I consider myself fairly neurotic kind of nervy person I'm not I'm not calm cool and collected um it, which is irritating because people always tell me that I am mm. when I'm on stage which is a great fake a great fake out <laughs> um but um I remember feeling that everything finally slowed down in my brain mm. and in my day and everything just came into alignment mm. and I never forgot that feeling Mm -hmm. um and the second thing that happened that day was i packed away my instrument i'm in my school uniform and i'm making my way out of the town hall and some of the players are hanging out along the um the walkway out of the hall and one of them says to me come here um myself and the lads were talking and we reckon you should become a conductor <laughs> <laughs> i mean talk about the greatest a casual comment from one of the the lads in the yeah. army band talk about the greatest thing they could possibly have said to 15 year old me I'm assuming, therefore, the next step is getting some lessons. Was that at Trinity College where you had some lessons? Or are you like others who, who have just gone through and, and never had a lesson and, and just seem to do it? No, I... Um, so, uh, <laughs> the, the other, the, I mean, God, this is like a blooming comedy. There was a beautiful nun in her 80s called Sister Vianney at school who uh, conducted the school orchestra. And she'd get kind of you know, annoyed with us or, or tired or whatever. And she'd say, go on, you just, you do it, you do it. And yeah. she'd push me in front of the orchestra. And similarly, you know, um, 
I would uh, get to do little arrangements and things for Christmas medleys or whatever, you know, and this was 14, 15, 16 kind of age. That's so important, you know, to, to let kids get, get yeah. their fingers stuck in and make stupid mistakes. And, but in terms of conducting lessons, um, I mentioned earlier, I did, I did a whole lot of master classes mm. anywhere I could get into anything you know, to get knowledge, to get technique. I felt frustrated by, um, I felt the lack of technique as almost like I couldn't speak or I couldn't express myself. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I did a whole lot of master classes. I studied for a time with the professor emeritus from Juilliard, um, Professor William Schaefer, because he moved to Cambridge. And I used to fly over to Cambridge as a teenager and study with him. Um, and that came out of meeting people at a master class at Manhattan School of Music, which was mm. I was there for, um, I think it was about a couple of weeks of master classes or something like that. And while I was there, I got to see Esa Pekasalan in rehearsal and I got to see Kurt Masur in rehearsal. And, you know, it was a really important formative thing. And also Manhattan School of Music is where they shot fame. So come on, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> It, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's at a point in your life when I believe that we're at our most receptive as conductors to take on board all of this information. You know, it's not just when you're participating in the masterclass and whoever is giving you the, the lesson, in inverted commas, it's you're watching the other people who are participating, you're going to rehearsals, you're, you're basically being the most absorbent sponge for conducting wisdom ever. And yeah. you know the problem comes with when is sorting out which bits of water or wisdom you can let fall out of the sponge and which bits you think you should keep. But at that yeah. point, you know it's it's perfect, isn't it? You're you're massively in love with music. You know you want to do this. You're getting all of this information, um, and it's the perfect time. And I think you know assisting and listening and watching rehearsals and masterclasses. It's it's uh, it's a must at that stage of anybody's career. Absolutely. And I mean, it also masterclasses are great because they give you uh, a sort of a taste of different styles of technique and different yeah. different conduct, what different conductors are like and who try to figure out who are you. And of course, conducting is a, a language first. It's I mean, your musical brain is what it's all about to begin with. But in terms of technique and, and that that physical expression, um, finding who you are is really important and, and taking on a vocabulary that then you assimilate and then it becomes your personal um, style of expression. Well, I think um, the person that really gave me the, the language of conducting, um, I, I'll, I'll go back and, and tell you some of my favorite conductors historically would be, and for very different reasons, Wilhelm Furtwängler and um, Igor Markevich. Mm. So Furtwängler's brain, I just it it just blows my mind. And uh, it would be Markevich's technique that I really really felt suited me best for a multitude of reasons. One, it's very very clear, and I didn't feel. First of all, as a young conductor, you're at a disadvantage with the orchestra. And secondly, as a young female conductor, mm. I didn't feel I'd ever be able to 
personality my way through. I needed <laughs> to show, as as they call it in Los Angeles, chops. Yeah. You got chops. You know, yeah. I needed that to be very clear. I needed it for me as well because it it made a sort of it made more logical sense to me. So Markevich's technique was always very, very clear. And you can hear it in the recordings. You can hear the detail, the clarity, everything. Um, The other thing was I knew that I wanted to be able to inhabit multiple worlds with music. Um, I wanted to be able to cross genres. And I also wanted to be able to synchronize um, in the studio to picture to tracks, to whatever needed to be synchronized. So I knew I needed a type of technique that would work both in a live situation, just with our organic orchestra and in the studio and with any form of synchronization live. When I was a student, really there wasn't much live synchronization happening, but the recording studio, we had the Yuri Click, we had the Oracle system. And, and then we have traditional conducting. Yeah. So that's why Markevich appealed to me. Um, how, however, Markevich passed away in the 80s. He was a student of Natalie Boulanger. It's all of that lineage. But I was really, really lucky, just as I was preparing to head off to do postgraduate studies in conducting, Markevich's protege, who was also a teaching assistant for 13 years, Gerhard Marxen, um, got the post of principal conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland. Mm. And he was such an amazing teacher, an out and out gentleman. And he was all about, if it doesn't work, don't do it. And it's like, you don't, you don't tell the orchestra what to do, you convince them. Yes. I'll never forget him saying that because he used to pronounce it, you must convince them, you know, <laughs> and so, so it's always stuck in my head. Yeah. Um, and he would say things like, be careful of, of using the word I in front of the orchestra because they're not your tool, they're yes. your colleagues and mm. you're make you know, he was just a wonderful, wonderful teacher and very clear technically, um, had, had it also had the ability to pick apart what you're doing and communicate to you how to fix it, which you can have conductors who have amazing technique, but they can't pick apart what a student is doing incorrectly in order to fix it. So I feel, I I studied with Gerhard for about two years and I feel very, very fortunate um, to have done that because he would, you know, he taught me Markevich's technique and, and, um, how Markevich would analyze a score and memorize a score and, and that kind of thing. So that was a stroke of luck. I was nodding and smiling away when you were talking about conducting clearly, especially when you started talking about crossing genres. As somebody who I love all music, you know, I've conducted the music of Bollywood, I've conducted contemporary music with the ink is still wet, Korngold Shostakovich, uh, the music from Sony PlayStation. I don't care what music is that I'm conducting. You know, I've done uh, orchestra live to film, all that sort of stuff, opera. I think, like you, that I needed a clear beat, and that's my been my, my approach from the start. Also tried to try and convey as much as possible with the beat so that I don't have to open my mouth. Um, but I was smiling very much in, in the fact that you, you seem to be like me, that you like all music, and but to find a way of conducting all music. The other thing I also made me laugh was 
you t- you were think- talking about not saying the word I. I remember when I joined the CBSO, every sentence Simon Rattle said started with we. We need to do this. We need to do that. And I remember sitting there thinking, it's a very odd choice that when I was 21. But it didn't take me long to realise it was the perfect choice to start every sentence. If he'd started it with I, you know, there would have been a barrier placed between us. But to start the sentences with we makes such sense, don't you think? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, especially when you're in the recording studio, because with click tracks and things like this, I find myself giving out to the producer all the time because producers often when it's my music it's my husband right okay <laughs> and um so it's like how are we supposed to how you need to give us eight clicks for you at this tempo how are we yeah. supposed to lock into the tempo but you know and, yeah. it's, <laughs> and you can see the guys you know nodding you know the yeah. brass or whatever nodding going yeah we need more or you know yeah. don't put the don't put the the, cla- the track with the previous tempo underneath the the new <laughs> the eighth clicks free into this tempo because i mean we're listening to two time how are we supposed to do this yeah i mean i can see the orchestra nodding and, and the guys <laughs> in the booth are rolling their eyes because this is like every time <laughs> you've just led on perfectly you could i couldn't have scripted it better to my next question which you know uh, if you look at your cv and what you do online a lot of what you do, obviously, you, you talked about your having the two tracks, the two careers running side by side. But a lot of what you do is the two the two careers amalgamated. Um, and I've talked earlier on. I think it was episode twenty with Matt Dunkley, who spends ninety five percent of his career inside the studio doing film and TV work. Now you do video games as well. You write music for video games. But, uh, I, I assume you also conduct other people's music for video games. Do you? most of the time or pretty much all of the time use click track for those um the music matt talked about i asked him and i'll ask you the same question later or you can answer it now i always ask the conductors how do you mark up and learn your score and he said well i don't because i normally see the score the morning i arrive for a session um is it the same in video game music uh, are there any differences really between film film and tv sessions and video game sessions so in the studio, um, film, video games, it's all the same depending on what is requ- what the music is required to do. And that's, that's really a lot of the time, most of the time it is recorded to click track because we have to add things, right. especially if we're doing what we call striping. And striping means um, recording all the strings by themselves, recording all the brass by themselves and, and, and layering the orchestra. And the reason that we do that is so that we can take away an element, really. It's ah, not even so yeah. we can add an element, so we can take one away. But that also depends on, on why you would take something away. So in mm. film, say if you have an action film where there's going to be lots and lots of uh, explosions and lots of, lots of um, sound design that's really loud, you might have extra layers of brass that you can you can take away in the dub on the dub mm. stage, and it's all about control in the dub session where they're yeah. mixing the music with sound design, with the dialogue, with all of the ambient sound, everything together um, to have control there. Because if all of a sudden the director says, "Oh my God, the this this moment in the sound design is really important," and the brass is just 
is in the way or something can yeah. we take the brass out and at that point if everything's recorded and mixed and, and produced you're like ah no we can't mm. um or and if, in that case what they'll do is they'll take your score and they will bury it in the background yeah and you don't want that no you don't want that so no, no so that so that would be a, one of the reasons to stripe a a movie um generally and that's the type of movie some action movies yes some not some animated features yes some not your dark and brooding um indie fi film most probably you won't need to 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 have control over your brass and the dub on that but no. you just don't know and it's it's the composer getting to know the director's needs and the producer's needs and and um what their relationship with film score is and how you know sometimes it's how um confident they are with their use in their use of music because sometimes you get directors that are just so scared of yeah. their film or their scene turning into a music video that <laughs> they will ask you to write what we call wallpaper <laughs> music which is basically texture or they can um, bury the score in the mix so yeah. um so for video games there's a few different usages of music you have what we call needle drop, which is the same as, as films where um, you're in a room and there's a gramophone there and the gramophone plays something that's, that's needle drop, yeah. literally the needle coming down on the gramophone. Huh. Um, the, so that will either be written or it will be licensed from somewhere. Um, right. Then you have the cinematic. In in big video games, the cinematic is the story of the game. It's the the film at the beginning of the game that tells you the background, the lore, the mythology, whatever it is, mm. the story of the game, who the characters are, what motivates them, all this stuff. So that you score just like a film. That will have edits, it'll have dialogue in place. You don't want to tread on dialogue. You want to match the edits, all of yeah. that sort of thing. Then you have in-game music, the music that's playing while you're in the game. Um, what we tend to do with big orchestral games, uh, game scores, is we create the hero version, which has got, you know, all of your brass playing, all of yeah. your strings, everybody, more, 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 more percussion, more percussion, more percussion, more percussion. And then let's throw a, a shofar on there and, and get a hurdy-gurdy, <laughs> throw that in as well, you know? So... Um, uh, kid in the candy store time and um that will have everybody but we depending on the situation and this has to do with dialogue between the the audio director of the the game company and the, the director director of the game mm. we might record all of that at once one version and we might record it in stems thereafter yeah um but you have to know what a piece is needed for uh, for instance, if you have a piece where uh, something that you do in the game um, triggers a certain reaction or whatever, we will write in a way that things can be looped mm. uh, or that certain, I'm not talking about loops like techno loops or that, I'm talking yeah. about looping, say an eight bar phrase or something yeah. and making it interesting. So you will you'll do it such that you can add your brass you can add your woodwinds you can add your percussion for a different flavor of the same thing and and often we will try and make it such that each section can work as an individual piece in itself and then in combination so i've been quoted as saying 
many times quoted as saying <laughs> many times because I always roll my eyes every time I see it they never explain why I said it which yeah. is I had if Mozart were alive today he'd write video game music I didn't say he'd write only video game music no, no, no. and also <laughs> the reason why the reason why I think he would be attracted to it is because there's that element of the puzzle Mozart yes. loved a good musical puzzle and this you can get as complicated with your musical puzzle as you want. I mean, you, can, you know, the way catches work, like in catch clubs, yeah. where you can you can layer something up and leave rests that are filled in by something else where you layer something else, something else. Generally, in catch clubs, it was syllables so that you could say something rude on the fourth you know, round. through, <laughs> or whatever. But um, but it is a puzzle, that aspect. Um, and and like I said, it can be as complex as you want it to be. Um, and some some games, you know, they want something that's very um, that's very textural and mm. doesn't have the big themes. But generally, when we're brought in, um, and I did ten years of recording for Blizzard Activision, we recorded about I don't know, we we must have recorded at least four four or five hours of orchestral music a year. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we go to Skywalker Ranch. Um, our orchestra was the Skywalker Symphony, which was the players from San Francisco Symphony Ballet and Opera Orchestras. And uh, we'd record an hour each each trip. We'd record an hour of, of orchestral music for 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 video games. For and, wow. and they were, you know, big sort of um, you know, Mahler size orchestras whatever mm. we we wanted you know we're not as big on the woodwinds as Mahler but the brass bigger even bigger brass yeah um you know we could have anywhere between eight and 12 French horns enough to balance the brass off of that so um yeah it, it's your scores are you know apps they're a few feet tall and <laughs> we've overdubs and yeah. um we'd record you know, in film and um, video game and action scores in particular, um, when you're presenting, uh, when you're presenting directors with um, MIDI mockups, when you use uh, a sequencer and you play middle C in your string sound, that's yeah. 32 violinists playing yes. that C. Then when you add your G below for your second violins, you now have 64 violins playing. <laughs> and then you add your violas and yeah. you, you add your celli and your bassi and you have this giant string section. Yeah. And, and these th things tend to be a little bit compressed as well. So they're very punchy. Yeah. And then you get into the studio and you have a, you know, normal borderline Mahler size string, string section. And it sounds puny by comparison because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have that that punch because it's it's not 200 people. You no. know? <laughs> um, but your director and your producer who don't know the orchestra generally are going, what? Why mm. does why does this <laughs> sound smaller? And it's really expensive compared to just, you know, having samples. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. It, so what we what we do, if we have a director like that who really loves that type of thing, um, we'll record overdubs yeah. and we'll create that size string section. So we'll orchestrate for that accordingly. So you could have three sets of string orchestras, three string orchestras on your score, 
and then all of your brass and woodwinds and, and probably choir and, and, and everything else besides. Um, oh, so you see, more. <laughs> see that, that's something new I've learned. I didn't know that happened. Uh, and that explains how, you know, some of the things I've listened to, and I come on to what I've listened to and why any second now, but some of the things I've listened to, I've thought, my God, that stream section sounds awesome. Uh, you know, where have they got that from? But now maybe I know the reason why. I'm going to jump ahead to a question that I was going to leave till later on. I'm going to go straight there now. And you're at an advantage here uh, compared to, say, somebody like myself. We've both conducted music from film in concerts. And most of the time that music comes from the main title or the end credits or a famous bit of the film or, you know, uh, or it could be films that we've all watched. You know, I know where all of the cues from Star Wars go because I've watched every single episode. When I've come to conduct concerts for video game music, which I've done on a couple of occasions, one for WDR Funkhouse in Cologne and one with the RPO, I did the history of Sony PlayStation at the Royal Albert Hall. I was lucky that a lot of those, when the you know the planning stage, somebody gone onto YouTube and could find the original version or could find the concert version of the music that was uh, that I was due to conduct. My question is this to you: is that you know if I'm conducting the asteroid field cue from the Empire Strikes Back, I know what the music should sound like because it's depicting the Millennium Falcon escaping the TIE fighters and flying through an asteroid field. But if I conduct a piece of video game music and it just says, you know, medals of honor or something, uh, but I don't know where, yeah, sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it sounds like a battle. Sometimes it sounds like a march of victory. But do you think it's as important to know the context of what we're conducting when we conduct video game music in concert as it, as it is in film? Um, you know, yeah, are you, are you expecting, well, I do as well, but the problem is that I, there comes a point where time doesn't allow me to buy all the video games and sit down and watch where and find out where all the music goes. But, you know, how does one go about that other than the long, long laborious way that I've done is just sit down on YouTube and type in whatever the, the music is and hope that somebody's put a version up online. Thank God they do a lot of the time, but sometimes they don't. In terms of the video games, um, you knowing the context, knowing where the video game is set, mm. knowing the the story behind the game, knowing the the fan base a little bit. I mean, for me, it's been an absolute joy and fascination getting to know this community of video game music fans. Mm. It's a whole other subset of music fans absolutely i, I agree from, yeah. I, yeah yeah i hear from that community online every day yeah yeah and um i get hey emer have you heard the score to blah 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 blah, blah. Yeah. and uh i see you've got this concert coming up uh, would you think about programming this sorry yeah, yeah, yeah um and i don't have time i have two small kids i don't have time to sit down and play all the games um but i've been immersed in that world for such a, a such a long time at this point that I kind of am aware of who's writing what, who's working on what, what their style is, what the game is, what the franchise is, what, what it's likely to be. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is, <laughs> you know, certain games have certain instrumentation and things yes. like that. You know, you have the great 80 synths, were they, are they retro or is it just that the game is old? Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, like for instance, I worked, I I composed on a game called uh, World of Warcraft, Warlords of Draenor. And World of Warcraft is a big title. 
but <laughs> I, I scored it orchestra choir and everything but I put um, a small just electric guitar part it's quite far back in the in the mix on this particular cue some fan gets on and goes what are you doing there are no guitars in Azeroth <laughs> I was like I was like oh I was wholly unaware but thank you <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. So, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's endlessly fascinating and yeah. fun. Um, but um, but like that, yeah, it, it's like you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna perform a particular piece by any composer, you're gonna go into their yes. their work and you're gonna go into the context and mm. the period and 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 I'm I'm always asked is video game music the be all and end all or whatever, and I'm like, do you know what? chill out it's yeah. what it's another music genre there's some great stuff there's a lot of good stuff and there's some bad stuff yeah, and generally yeah. generally the bad stuff doesn't survive most of the good stuff doesn't survive but the great the great stuff will and yeah. it'll be just another ad addition to musical life um and uh it makes a lot of people very happy yes absolutely that's part of our job too a big part of our job it's not just satisfying our own you know aesthetic or artistic needs or whatever but um how we keep emotionally healthy is a good this is a good broad having a good broad spectrum of of music to work with uh so that when you do something that's that's wholly for the public that you can bring joy to it and and and, and a great amount of seriousness and I see video game music as pop art you know yeah yeah it's, yeah. it's like orchestral orchestral pop art so Kind of takes a bit of the the stress and the pressure off, you know. But, but it's like this. Um, I'm, I get asked about musical snobbery a lot. I mean, they used to throw orange orange peel at the sopranos in Mozart opera buffa if she didn't hold the high notes long enough. I mean, mm. opera buffa in its day was got the same kind of you know um, the, the the same kind of looking down their noses kind of thing, but. I'm Very not compa true. comparing video game music uh, in, internally to Mozart. It's not that. It's more the attitude of something new that's populist. Mm. And, um, and, and and people will will form there will an audience will form for it. There you know an audience form for opera buffa. There's now an audience for video game music, whether it be in concert, whether yeah. it be actually you know, listening to it on Classic FM. There's always one or two in the top 10 every year, uh, and either a classic video game soundtrack or, a, or a, you know, a new one. Um, and it's here to stay. And, you know, that looking down your nose at it, it won't achieve anything. It's, it's here forever now. Um, well, well, you know what, though, is musical snobbery um, makes me laugh endlessly because it's, you have, let me see, let me start. Where am I going to start with this? Okay, you have... <laughs> The opera people who think Broadway is just, is, is muck, is beneath them. You have the symphony people who think opera is ridiculous. You have the chamber music people who think symphony is, symphonic music is totally over the top. Then you have the, um, the period instrument people who think modern instruments are too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And where do you go on? Yeah, yeah. Whatever. 
I am totally, I am, I am slagging everybody off because uh, we all deserve it. And, uh, and, and then you have the contemporary art music people who think that anything approaching to uh, um, a recognizable tonality is just beyond the pale. So I love everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and I love all the styles and all the genres. I would hate to eat the same food every single day. Oh, God. No, absolutely. At this point... I asked Ema about the 2020 Oscars, how she became involved, what it was like conducting at the Oscars, and dealing with the whole media circus attached to the ceremony. I also asked how she felt as the first woman to conduct at the Oscars, and whether she felt she was a trailblazer, like Marin Olsop and Simone Young. Ema also told me quite a few anecdotes about her experiences. If you want to hear that 20-minute chat, I've turned it into a Patreon bonus mini-episode. For the price of a glass of wine once a month, you can get access to this, plus all of the previous bonus mini-episodes, articles, videos, other full-length interviews with prominent figures in the classical music world, and much, much more. The link to subscribe to my Patreon page is in the show notes attached to this episode, and you can even get a 10% discount for the year if you pay annually. Now, back to my interview with Ema Noon. I suspect, because we touched on it earlier, when you come to do new music for video games or film or TV, you get the score for that very late, if not actually on the day. So score prep is not yeah. something that you, you know, you might make a few markings in whatever else. When you come to do a concert that is planned six, nine, 12 months in advance, how do you go about learning a new score? It's a question I've asked absolutely mm. every conductor on this podcast. Do you sit at the piano and learn it, or do you just use your any ear? And when you learn it, are you a marker inner? Do you scribble things in? Do you use colours like me, red, blue, and black, or uh, do you leave your scores blank? What's your approach? Um, it depends on how much time I have, and if the concert's planned for six months from now, now you can be guaranteed I'm not looking at the scores now, right? Because I'm doing whatever else I'm yes. I have to do for next week. Yeah. Um, so uh, in the studio, no, um, I never get to see the music first. And what's weird is even if I've written it, if it's a film, mm. there's so much music and it's written so quickly that I have, uh, you know, very little <laughs> recollection of of what it was. And, yeah. and secondly, um, my brain for for conducting in the studio or conducting in general is different to my composer brain. So yeah. even if I if I have memory of things compositionally, you're thinking, you know, the way when you're thinking of technical things, meter changes, cues, temperatures, yeah. so on and so on. What's great is when I'm in a concert and those two come together and elevate a little bit more. That's that's really great. That's the ultimate. But uh, if I get to mark in anything in the studio, um i'll blitz through if it's you know um and this is say a project that's not mine where i've no clue what's happened what the music is about yeah. at all um first thing i will do is actually plan the session like a general yes and what's to go where and and what's to go when and there's a whole lot of consideration that goes into how yeah. to to plan the session so that's my first thing it's more important that i do that then actually mark up the scores. Mm. Um, but uh, I will have a red pencil with me on the stand and I will mark in, you know, funny things, you know, no longer is it really cues. It's more like, 
um, if there's an ensemble point or something that I need to tidy up. Because when I'm recording, I'm thinking so much about post-production. Yes. What I want to clean up in the moment so we don't have to do it later because there'll be millions of things anyway. Mm. If I can reduce them, that's what I'm about um, on the stand. Um, in terms of studying for a concert, um, if I have time, if it's not a score that's thrown at me where it's, where it's a festival where, oh yeah, the composer that was to come conduct their, their uh, 45 minutes, yeah, they can't make it for rehearsals now. Can you do that? <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm about to leave for the airport. Yeah. Um, okay, you know, I guess. Um, so that's a whole other level. That's where you're, you're scribbling in markings. You don't have a click track, so you have to get your bearings on the tempo changes and so okay. on. Um, uh, that's a, that's another that's another panic marking situation. I do use two colors when I can. I use um, blue for structure and mm. red for cues. Mm. And cues are are weird for me. I won't just cue an instrument. I'll cue the end of, of a note sometimes or an right. chord, especially if if there's. I, I think of it as keeping the edges of the rests clean, you know, right. like nice smooth edges on the rests either side. So I'll mark in things like that, especially if it's a, a where I have a lot of people where it's strings or, or a lot of people finishing something. Yeah. Um, especially if there's if there's something that I need to clear the air for really quickly, I'll mark that. Um, of course, I'll I'll be cognizant of um, of uh, tempo changes. I won't really mark meter changes. I used to when I was a student, but I don't really do that anymore. If I have the score for enough luxury time, <laughs> um, I'll sit at the piano and I will I will go through and I might do an harmonic analysis of what's yeah. going on. Um, that that'd be one thing, and then I like to. Um, uh, I'll get a often from that I'll get a sense of structure. So I'll start macro and get micro. I'm sure most people do that. Yeah, so it's so a I'll get a sense. Answer. Of, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so structure first. Um, it get, it makes me feel less stressed as well. I'm like, oh, okay, this is it looks like this shape, and we yeah. have X number of tempo changes. And if it's media music that we're doing live without any click track, none of those tempi will be related, will they? <laughs> no, they won't, yeah. um, because you're you're dealing with edits, you know. So um, I love it. I love it when you're doing repertoire and there's like relationships between tempo changes. Like, oh, how quaint. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Anyway, um, I'll do harmonic first, structural, if there's certain, if there's a way I can use phrasing for memory, mm. um, I'll, I'll do that. Um, oh, great. This section has, you know, four, eight bar phrases or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, then I'll, to be, to be horribly simplistic, um, then I will take it uh, section by section and sit in the orchestra chair so i'll start with the first violins and i'll sit as a player and i'll either play through it at the piano or i'll read through it hmm. um sitting at my desk um generally if i'm sitting at the piano it means i have luxury time i if, if yeah. i'm probably in a hotel room somewhere um and then i'll go second violence then i'll go violi so on and so on so that i can see oh here's where the pizzicato is here's where the arco is here's where the the triple stops are the this side or the other um and then i will look through it as a section yeah see how the how the the various instruments interact with each other um and then i'll do that same thing with from the top down so i'll start with woodwinds 
um, you know, it doesn't matter what order, it's just if you're used to having a methodology, whatever it is, is, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but uh, I, I think what's come out of the podcast is that, you know, a lot of people go from big to small, uh, look at the overall architecture come in on it. Uh, I think it's the latter processes like you're talking about. You know, some some people said that they uh, they sing through each part rather than play it on the piano or you know, try and pitch it in yeah. their head, actually sing it out yeah. loud. Um, other mm -hmm. people will then go to phrase structure and you know it's the it's the when we when we go into the minutiae I think that that's when people are different but then we mainly all do the same things we might just do them in a different order you know and it's it's yeah. a way of of you know I use marking my scores up as a way of learning it um, others don't you know they 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 look at it in different ways but I think that's the key thing isn't it that we we all have our own way but we all have to do the homework um Sometimes in your case, the homework is is uh, is about five minutes before the session, or a quarter of an hour, or forty five minutes. But we, you know, most of us would prefer six months. <laughs> yeah, but you know what, though, isn't it isn't it such a part of our of our working lives that we have to be adaptable? Absolutely, and, yeah, yeah. And go with go with what you got. I mean, if you uh, got lots of time, go with it. If you don't. I mean, you can always turn down. And then that's the other thing, knowing when to turn down something, you just don't, you can't be in two places at once. So you can't, you know, um, but it's, it, it's important to be adaptable and to, and to roll with it. Yeah. And sometimes you can amaze yourself. You know, I, I remember having to learn because I was, I, you know, I was standing in a very late notice for somebody who couldn't get to rehearsal. So I took the morning, which was all music I'd, I'd conducted before, uh, knowing that a piece was coming in the afternoon, that by then the conductor, who was also the composer, should be should have arrived. At some point in the morning, the orchestra came to me and said, "Could you take this afternoon's rehearsal?" I said, "You've got to be joking!" I, uh, you know, show me the score. They showed me the score in the tea break in the morning, and I said, "Well, I'll do it if you give me a two-hour lunch break and not a one-hour lunch break." And they said, "Okay, fine." And they were that desperate that I, you know, and I, so I learned it in two hours. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to conduct, but you walk out of there at the end of the day thinking, do you know what? I've just amazed myself. I could, I, I did learn it. Yeah, I did manage right. it, you know, but yeah. that's it. Then you walk into the next project and think, well, if I could do that in two hours, what can I do here? You know, that's the point, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. It's about yeah, building yeah, the skills up. Mm. It's about being self-forgiveness as well for it. Yes. Look, I can't be perfect on this because yeah. I just got it. Yeah. And I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. And uh, yeah, it, it is it is really interesting. And, and um, I have so many questions for you, actually. I'm enjoying this so much. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm always trying to learn as well more, you know, change my technique or my my uh, my study technique or my rehearsal technique or, you know, it, it's it's endlessly fascinating. And it's, you know, it like just, it. the education never ends. I can tell you. Uh, the best way of, of expanding your mind about all sorts of uh, conducting techniques, psychologies, thoughts, is to interview 90 of them over an 18-month period. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I've learned so much from everybody I've spoken to, um, absolutely everybody, uh, about how they learn scores, how the, what their attitude is about learning scores, but also their attitude towards the conduct, uh, conducting itself, the psychology of orchestras, the psychology of managements, the psychology of running an opera house in Germany, the psychology of all of these sort of things. And I walk away from every interview 
thinking, oh, wow, you know, I've learned something new today. The joy is that at some point in about two months' time, I then come back and have to edit them to put them out on the podcast. So I listen to them back again. And that, so it gets ingrained into my head. And I think that's been the joy of the pandemic for me. I've, I've basically been given a, a, a lesson or life lessons or conducting lessons by 90 other conductors so far. It'll be, it's 90 and counting. I'm going to get to 100. Um, I have an idea of who I want for episode 100. He hasn't said no and he hasn't said yes, but um, so Simon, if you're listening, answer the phone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, there we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ema, it's time for the 10 questions that every conductor has answered since episode one, or was it episode two, with Andrew Litton? Who cares? The first two are, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Ooh, I love, what sound do I love? Um, oh gosh, there's, there's a really great singer that I love is um, a jazz vocalist. And strangely enough, when she sings scat or any kind of vocalese. Um, her name is Tierney Sutton. I love the sound of her voice. I also love the viola uh, in the viola in the mid-range. I yeah. love violas. I write a lot for violas as a composer because I just love that sound. Um, what sound do I hate? There's a lot of sounds. Okay, so I hate shopping for this one particular reason. Mm-hmm. I can't understand how people cannot hear this sound. You know, the steel tops of clothes hangers? Yes. And then you have those steel rails Mm -hmm. and you have somebody standing at that rail going. (laughs) It is horrendous. And I just, and I'm looking around at all these people going, don't you hear that? Don't you hear that? Don't you hear that? Um, My, myself, my brother and my mom have this mad, uh, sensitivity to high frequency sound which helps in the studio mm. all the time it's helped me knock out a couple of things that shouldn't have been on a recording a couple of times and I've had complete nerds from Blizzard Activision you know who you are test me with an oscillator a few times right. um, but I if it's if it's a it, I can hear the deer away thing that my mother-in-law uses to scare deer off her lawn in Chicago. Um, <laughs> and I can hear the rodent uh, boxes oh, that wow. they have in California to scare off rodents. Um, but anything that's really, really obnoxious, high frequency, but those clothes hangers, man, come on, people, the lack of sensitivity. Wow. <laughs> that's Brilliant. why I never go shopping. hate it. <laughs> Brilliant answers. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Oh, 24 hours free. I suppose I'd want to be somewhere. I I think I'd just love to go on a hike in Norway. I mean, I've been to Norway a few times now, and I just, the landscape is so inspirational to me. And Mm. I'm, you know, I've traveled so much and cities and noise and airports that I really come to appreciate the countryside because that's how I grew up. But uh, I've been watching, <laughs> so I've been watching lots of great Scandinavian stuff on Netflix. Are you looking <laughs> at this? And, and I remember flying in, I went to work with the Bergen Philharmonic and flying into Bergen over all of these little islands 
it's such a stunning country. Um, so I think I think I take some Norwegian friends and go for a hike um, in, in up up in uh, up outside of Bergen in Norway. That would that would be it. Now, question four, you gave a couple of answers to this earlier on. I wonder whether they are your answers or whether there are any more. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Oh, yeah. So, so Wurt Wegler um, and, and Markevich for completely different reasons. Yeah. Wurt um, Wegler, I remember uh, going, it being in music college and um, one of my lectures at Trinity was uh, a reviewer for classic CD, I think, what was it called? What uh, one of the, the the CD? We don't even use CDs anymore. No. Um, but he said, "Look at, go and buy this one Beethoven recording." Because we've been talking about Fortefinger, and it was the the recordings from the forties with the Berlin Philharmonic. And I remember putting on the Seventh Symphony. I was getting ready to go to a student party, and the second movement came on. I was so floored. I had to sit on my bed in my dorm room and mm. just be motionless. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The architecture so incredibly well uh, illustrated mm. of the movement by Ford Fengler. Um, it just really changed how I heard Beethoven from then on. And the Ninth Symphony, the choir, oh my God, they, <laughs> they sound like humanity. They, mm. they sound like the voices of, of, of the human race. And it just, I'd never been able to, um, to, to listen to Beethoven uh, the same way ever since. Um, uh, Markevich just, just for completely such a different sound. And this is why I love these two are kind of on the opposite spectrum for me because um, the, the rawness in the fourth finger and the, the, the heaviness um, mm. it is, it, it's so, so rich and wonderful. And then Markevich, the clarity and the detail and the finesse is so stunning. Mm. Um, and it just, everything, it, to me, that's my, that's my scale, you know, and everybody else is somewhere <laughs> between <laughs> those two. <laughs> uh, Toscanini's on his own planet, but um, yeah. the, the, those two are, um, are my, my yardsticks, I suppose. Now, I wonder whether you've got two people at the opposite end of the spectrum for question number five. Can you name your favourite current conductor or conductors? I, I've been really liking what Valerie Gergiev has been doing lately. Hmm. Um, I, do, I do really like him, um, especially when I'm listening to him do something I know really well and it sounds, um, it sounds new to me. Hmm. I mean, there's... Uh, if you go online, you can find his Romeo and Juliet overture, and and I'm just going, wow, this is like new and fresh to me. Um, I do like I do like Sir Simon a lot, and um, I'm endlessly fascinated by um, the, the the Sibelius Academy's output of yes. and conductors, yeah. and um, uh, you know, jealous that I hadn't gone there as a student. However my i i had i had the right teacher for me i yeah. adored him and he yeah. gave me what i feed my children with today you know he gave <laughs> me that 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 skill um 
yeah, that, that would be it for me right yeah. now. Um, there's, there's a lot out there and, you know, the answers never don't have to be long or short for these. Um, yeah, there's a whole load of, a whole generation of great conductors out there. And I agree about the Sibelius Academy, you know, from the days of Yorma Panola teaching there through Atsa Al Miller, and now my old boss and friend and teacher, Sakari Oromo, is teaching there. You know, oh, that's, really? Uh, yeah, oh, that's he's, he started there in the middle of the pandemic i think he started there as the as the head teacher um because he would he would be a student of yorma panula he, he was yeah he was uh, yeah. and it, and it was him who suggested when I, he first saw me conduct he said you should go and have some lessons um and uh, you should go to yorma panula and he'll stop you conducting like a speared octopus um and he was right he was <laughs> absolutely right what is the hardest work you've ever conducted well i'm going to say project instead of work because Fine. it was multiple works the music wasn't the difficulty so it was the maria callas hologram project uh, i thought and it that might was, be <laughs> yeah, frightening so, when you talked about it <laughs> yeah yeah well it was um actually when i when i was going on maternity leave i went through 33 different conductors i sent materials to, to get one to say yes <laughs> to cover it um now now next time i'm going to send it to you um but it was uh so it was it was really <laughs> you just you just made me choke <laughs> actually i'd love to take i'd love to take it on it sounds amazing um it, purely it through, for an, the challenge yeah. yeah it was an amazing project because it was really for the audience and it was it was a complete love letter to her and her yeah. legacy um but it was the synchronization was hair raising and we we had so little time mm. to rehearse um you know when 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 a a show is on tour an orchestral project is on tour it's all financed by the investors the promoters the ticket sales and all of that so there's no um safety net so yeah. they can't give you a ton of rehearsals yeah. it's not covered by the national broadcaster or the government or anything or, or it's subsidized um so we had two two rehearsals it was a an easy really easy concert when i had two three-hour rehearsals with 20 minute breaks that was that was the dream Mm. But it was very often uh, two, two and a half hour rehearsals with a 20 minute, 30 minute break. I had timed every minute of rehearsal mm. to the mm. minute where I'm rehearsing going, OK, that took 12 minutes. It should have taken 10. I need to borrow that two minutes from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, it was an, it was so hard. And the the click track was so difficult that we had to notate it in the parts and in the score at times. Uh, uh. And it would change in, in the middle of a bar, it could change from uh, a quarter note click to a dot, you know, to eighth triplet eighth notes back to to uh, tuplet eighth notes to um, you know, I'm I'm a mess of eighth notes and quavers, by the way. I get stuck between out I'll put both in one sentence. Yeah. But um it was it was excruciatingly difficult um and i will never forget it. <laughs> i would definitely do it again um because it was so beautiful for the audience um and so magical and it got to you know celebrate her legacy which wasn't just the showstoppers and the 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 big things it was also we we had scenes from hamlet and macbeth in there that and things like Norma that she practically brought back into existence from yes. obscurity, you know. Mm. So um, it was really, really worth doing. 
Um, it was really, really difficult uh, because Callis was such a rubato artist and we wanted to honor her interpretations and not, um, not deviate from her intentions. So that was what made it so difficult. We could have gone in there and, you know, time corrected some stuff and we didn't. No. We, we, we chose to be the fidelity of her, um, of her performance. Synchronizing. Oh my is, God, it's so uh, hard. Yeah. It, Synchronizing. <laughs> I've, I've had two moments like that. Um, one was, the, I think it's called the Newman system of streamers and pips and things that go across the screen. Yeah. I was conducting North by Northwest. With, punches, yeah. yeah, North by Northwest with the English National Opera Orchestra. And that's fine if the, the score is recorded to click track, but it wasn't. North by Northwest wasn't. It was done, conducted yeah. by Bernard Herrmann and just fitted to the film. So there were moments when things just seemed to randomly rush uh, and you know so the 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 Newman system was was glued to the original soundtrack and the, I I worked out that in the overture in the main titles at the beginning the credits the famous credits that it was okay to let the film be one bar ahead of me uh because at some point later on yeah. it dragged a lot and came back to where I was I mean, but you have to learn these things by practicing and the other one is the snowman yeah. how Blake the snowman I've never done it with the Newman system, with the streamers and with a click track or anything like that. And the sense of achievement when you get the music to land as the snowball hits the window about five minutes in, um, because you've got the synchronicity bang on just by looking at a time clock underneath the film, you just think, oh, I've nailed it, you yeah. know? Uh, and it's, it, yeah, it's so hard, but I, I love doing it. I absolutely love doing it. Um, yeah. I'm looking forward to hopefully doing some more snowmen soon. Next. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Here it is. I'm going to show you right now. See this rolly thing? Oh, I don't um, know what they're I called. Even, yes. I have no idea what they're called, but for my lower back, I yeah. need this rolly thing. Um, yeah. Getting off planes after rehearsals, uh, all of that. And three times I toured into the third trimester of pregnancy. And this thing, uh, absolutely saved my life um and it was always funny when i'd get down from the podium and someone in the brass section almost every time i go whoa i go yeah <laughs> the music stand by the multitude <laughs> but um, so for the listener no, that, what image just really held big. up is one is a sort of a it's a sausage of of hard foam it's probably about 18 inches to two feet long and i'm, I'm going to stick to old school because i can't think of it in centimeters probably 45 to 60 centimeters long a circular very hard foam and you put it on your lower back or you put it on the floor and roll over it um and we've got yeah. one in, in in our lounge downstairs and now and again either me or my yeah. wife will be found rolling on the floor trying to flatten our backs out a uh, very good answer <laughs> number eight what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor yeah, I would, you know, one of the things that, that always happens with me, and, and it's so frustrating, is I'm not terribly tall. And I, so many times, especially in the States, you come in and you have these hydraulic stands in uh, in studios in particular, and they can, you know, with the push of a button, the whole music stand, mm. which is huge, will go up or down. And, the, you know, the guys will be like, Okay, okay, do we have it all the way down? It's all the way down. That's as far as it goes. Oh my God, she's going to be, we're not, you know. <laughs> and the number of times I'd, I've had to have a podium on the podium so that <laughs> <laughs> so that people can see me. Mm. So, yeah, those hydraulic stands, can we make them for, 
um slightly smaller people please i mean i'm not i'm not i'm five foot five you know but but still um that one always frustrates me um also can we please get taller my my big one is music stands because um because music today is is say when you have overdubs and you have choirs and you have a rock band in the middle of these these big scores for media the number of times i have these music stands that are that are i'm not performing a haydn symphony and most people yes. aren't performing haydn symphonies every day can we have one that fits the music please yeah. and then can we have one that's wide enough and one that's that don't fall over and can we have stand lights that make sense and that that don't that don't hit my pages when i turn if we you know all of these things it's about the you know um it, i i actually solicited a friend to to think about designing a lightweight conductor stand to bring on tour with me i was, I was that frustrated with it um it's so, a very so, valid point um <laughs> you know behind me on the shelves i've had to build some shelves with my a3 scores i never realized i was going to have so many a3 scores but i have um but actually you're right many scores now are getting even bigger than a3 and there is, I, I've conducted regularly off a stand that will take an A3 score, but I've never seen one bigger than that. And more often than not, you then end up having a bit of wood shoved underneath to make these pages turn over and not fall Thank over. You. Yeah. And and then when you do, you're hitting a stand light that's in the way. And then if you move the stand light, somebody complains, well, I can't see now because your light's blinding me. And and it's difficult enough doing what we do without having to deal with an inanimate object that somebody hasn't designed properly. So I'm with you design a better music stand that will go up and down out and in and fit any size score deal with Thank it you. world <laughs> <laughs> number nine what profession other than your own would you like to attempt uh it's a bit late because i'd like to be a surgeon um so i think if i had ever done anything else um it would be medicine and i think the area of medicine would be surgery because I, I that's as close as I can think uh, uh it's it's the a similar tightrope walk I mean we think we have a life and death situation or, <laughs> or people's lives in our hands we think we have we indulge ourselves but uh but but surgeons and I I just have so much respect uh for people that do that especially uh, in areas that have to do with neurology I think it's absolutely incredible um, I'm not going to attempt that now, but something I might attempt uh, that doesn't require a million years of, of going to school and having people's actual lives in your hands. Um, I find myself veering more and more into production production, as mm. in film production and, 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 um, and theater and so on. Uh, especially on the film side, so I can see um, musical projects where I'm also, well, I've already produced some things, but I've become more involved in the, the inception and the conception of the project and, and pulling a team together and, and you know, helping get it financed and, and mm. things like that. So, so that's something I can see. And, and there'd be you know, projects that are very music oriented. Um, so, uh, so that would be it, I'd say. If the world was to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, I think um, it would have to be Irish whiskey, mm. and don't tell them down in Cork because they're very they're very uh, full of themselves down there. Um, <laughs> it would be Middleton, a glass of Middleton whiskey, mm. and 
some of the jalapeno tuna from Nobu in in Malibu, California. Those wow, those would be my two. So very different, but uh, but yeah. <laughs> I've never thought about that before, by the way. No, that's fine. Well, talking about being very different, as I said earlier on, there were, there were going to be so many different topics for me to discuss with you today, and I've enjoyed every one of them. It's been a real joy. Thank you, Ema, and I hope very soon we can chat again, maybe over a glass of Middleton whiskey, which sounds delicious. Oh, Mike, I, any, I would love that, and I feel I've made a new friend, and uh, see you out there, and see you for a glass of whiskey somewhere. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with an English conductor who's had an extremely diverse career, starting as a professional singer, then becoming a conductor on both the concert stage and in the opera house, while also starting his own record label. He's probably best known, however, for starting his own ensemble in 1979, an ensemble he still conducts to this day, The Sixteen. But until then, bye-bye.